0: the hearing a legal podcast from Thomson
1: reuters
0: the first quote-unquote question that i ask and that i train people to ask on every occasion is tell me when people come in to see me in mediation i don't say how much are you willing to pay what are your claims what are your defenses i say tell me what's brought you in today tell me is the broadest possible prompt you can use to start any conversation.
1: Hello to our listeners and welcome back to The Hearing, where we have insightful discussions with interesting people connected to the law. I'm Jennifer Thibodeau, and today I am thrilled to welcome Alex Carter to the podcast. Alex is the director of the Columbia Law School Mediation Clinic. She is a negotiation trainer for the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, government agencies, nonprofits, and more. Alex is also the author of the Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything. I invited Alex on the podcast because I have been admiring her from afar on social media for several years. She is quite active and consistently posts sage advice about negotiation and particularly about how women must demand their worth. In today's episode, we talk about exactly that. We talk about what negotiation is and what it isn't, The best and worst questions to ask while negotiating, how Alex found herself in this career, and how to steer conversation and negotiate outside of the traditional context. I am so excited to have had this opportunity to speak with Alex live, and I hope you find her as inspiring and empowering as I did. I know that you'll learn a lot. The Hearing. Hello, Alex, and welcome to The Hearing. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, I want to jump right in because I want to talk about the word negotiation itself. I will confess to you and our listeners that even as a former litigator, I always used to think of the word negotiation as a fight over money or making a compromise. And it wasn't until I started following you and read your book, Ask for More, that I came to think of the word negotiation differently. Tell us how you define negotiation.
0: So I was like you, Jen. I, early on in my career, I was taught that it was basically either haggling over money or some kind of deal terms, and the goal was an agreement at the end. And when I thought about it that way, at the time I was a junior to mid-level associate at a large firm, I thought, well, I guess I don't really negotiate that much because I'm not always sitting down with the client to hammer out an agreement. I'm not going in necessarily in a big law context to advocate for salary. And I'm not always the one taking my clients to mediation if we end up in court. So I guess I don't negotiate. But then I went on my honeymoon and I went on my honeymoon with a fellow litigator. That is where I learned <laughs> what negotiation is. Not just because, you know, two litigators in close quarters, but picture this. We're in Hawaii on our honeymoon. And of all places, we're we're in a kayak. And our guide up ahead turns back to us and says, all right, folks, let's negotiate these things to the left because we're going to hit that beach up ahead. And I remember kind of mentally stopping in that moment and thinking, I can't remember the last time I heard the word negotiate used in that way. But that's right. If I'm negotiating my kayak down at a river or I'm negotiating a mountain path, what am I doing? I'm steering. And I thought to myself in this moment, what would my life look like as a professional, as a an attorney, as a woman still in a male-dominated profession, if I saw every conversation I had with somebody as the opportunity to steer that relationship. And so these days, that's what I teach and practice. Negotiation is simply steering. It's steering the relationships with your colleagues, with the people you report to, with the folks who report to you, with your clients, with your potential clients, or even yes, if you're facing off with opposing counsel across a negotiation table. All of those are relationships and all of those can be intentionally steered in every conversation. And when I started thinking about negotiation this way, I found that not only was I creating better deals, but I was also having better relationships, intentional relationships with all of the people in my personal professional life. And I'll say this, the last piece of this for me was, I felt like I was also steering my career for the first time, that I was in the driver's seat of that kayak and I wasn't waiting for the next opportunity. I was looking around for chances to steer, to get closer to whatever that beautiful beach was that I was aiming for.
1: I love this definition because when I read it and I really enjoy hearing you explain it, it was as if a light bulb went off for me. And it is this visual that now I can think of as I try to steer conversations and steer relationships in my own life. As I mentioned, I read your book. I have it right here, Ask for More. 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything, I had another light bulb moment that I wanted to share with you, and I I hope you'll talk a little bit about this with our listeners. And that is, one of the most important questions that you recommend in your book is not, in fact, a question (laughs) at all. Can you talk a little bit about this, quote-unquote, I'm using air quotes here, question that is one of the most important in No Negotiation? Oh,
0: I I love this. And just yesterday, in fact, I was training a large law firm in negotiation, and I told the story of how once Ask for More was written and it went into copy edits, I tuzzled with the copy editors at Simon and Schuster a little bit because they said, Alex, you you centered this this chapter around this question, and it's it's actually not a question, it's a command, <laughs> and here it is. So the first quote unquote question i'm going to explain this in a minute that i ask and that i train people to ask on every occasion is tell me when people come in to see me in mediation i don't say how much are you willing to pay what are your claims what are your defenses i say tell me what's brought you in today tell me is the broadest possible prompt you can use to start any conversation It leaves things open, it gets information without putting people on the defensive. And what it's really about, because here's what all negotiation is about, it's about problem solving. And when I ask somebody, tell me what's brought you here today, or tell me why we're meeting, or tell me your views on this situation, what I'm asking them for is, how do you see the problem that we're solving today? is this a legal issue for you? Is this a business issue? Is it a personal issue? What is it? And once we start to think about that problem that we're solving, then we're able to apply our efforts to solve it. And so when I called these Simon & Schuster editors, I said, listen, um, tell me there's really an implicit can you, in front of this, right? Can you tell me about yourself? Can you tell me more about what's brought you in? And what's interesting, Jen, is that it is technically in the imperative mood, but people don't read it that way. Tell me reads as a sincere and open question that can start any conversation off on a great note.
1: And your book really does focus on asking these open questions questions, which is why I'd love to ask, what's a question you recommend not asking? Because if I understand it correctly, it's a question that I would default to. And is that the why question? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And so interesting.
0: You know, when I first started mediating, I realized that when there was a why question in the air that it induced defensiveness. Just think about it. If we're meeting and I say, why did you do that? Or why was that decision made? People implicitly read this as a blame assigning question. And social work research actually bears this out. And so, especially if there's any sort of emotional heat to a conversation, I would never ask why. I would instead ask, what, or tell me. So instead of, Jen, why did you do that? I might say, what went into that decision? What was happening that day? What was your understanding of the problem we were solving? Or even, tell me about that. Walk me through it. It's a much broader and instead of being, you know, a blame assigning conversation, that then becomes a diagnostic conversation. What can we learn from this together that's going to help us both the next time something comes up?
1: As I hear you speak, it really occurs to me when you mention things like keeping an open mind, not making assumptions and trying to avoid defensiveness that much of skilled negotiation might require a high level of emotional intelligence. This is this is what
0: I've been preaching for many years. But what I'll say is sometimes when people hear emotional intelligence, they think it's something you're born with. I think mm. people associate intelligence with it's innate. I either have it or I don't. And Jen, I just don't have that thing and instead what i would describe as core to negotiation is a competency this is about advanced listening and it's something that you can learn to do indeed this is one of the things that i really enjoy teaching law students so in my day job i'm a clinical professor at columbia law school i teach mediation and i love teaching students brilliant students who've been trained to issue spot. They've been trained to look at something and make a snap decision and advise people. That's what they've been rewarded for in their first year of law school. And then they come to me and instead what we're doing is we're listening to see where parties are and we're supporting them in their thought process and their decision making. And they think, well, this is great for this context, but how could I use this and also be a lawyer? And what I tell them is, in fact, the skills you use in mediation or negotiation, that advanced listening, being able to hear what you're saying, maybe what you're not saying, how your body language accords or doesn't accord with the words that are coming out of your mouth, not only is that essential for dispute resolution, it's essential for client service. And, and here's where I, I wanna tell a personal story about a failing of mine from when I was first in practice. Here I was, I'd been trained in mediation at law school and I loved the work. And then I went out to become a litigator. And a couple years into my career, I was still junior and I was really trying to impress my bosses. And we had a client come in, and this was a client who was an artist and very high profile and had had a collaboration fall apart. And when i tell you i was prepared for this meeting i prepared what i thought the claims were what the other side's possible defenses were where we could sue what type of (laughs) judges were in that area and i prepared in the wrong way because i wasn't listening to what the client said in front of us so she spoke and then i said okay here's what we can do and i laid out the litigation strategy my partner looked pleased But I looked on the face of the client and I thought, oh my God, I've missed it. These words are coming out of my mouth and this is not what this client wants at all. She doesn't want a big litigation. She was telling me or trying to tell me with her words and certainly with her body language that she wanted to find a way to repair this collaboration so she could work again. And in that moment I realized that I thought I had to drop my mediator hat to be an excellent lawyer, counselor, litigator, but in fact, it was quite the opposite. That what I had been trained to do, what I had forgotten to do in that moment was to use my advanced active listening skills that I had worked so hard on in mediation so that I could be solving the the problem that my client wanted me to solve, not the one that I thought she should want
1: to solve. Thank you for sharing that story. It certainly resonates with me as a former litigator, and I know it'll resonate with our listeners as well. And here's something I'm wondering as I hear you talk about active listening and then picking up on visual cues like body language. Tell us about what you do when you notice that someone might be nodding their head and saying, you know, yes, I really want to do this, but They look otherwise hesitant, and there is that disconnect.
0: You know, Jen, when you were telling me just now that you thought the settlement agreement worked for you, your words were saying yes, but it looked like your face was saying no. And so I just want to open the floor up here today to say, what concerns do you have? We don't have to do this. We can take time. Let's hear it. That's what I would do. I mean, the truth is that all communication is communication. And it, I was about to say you'd be shocked, but no, you would not. You would you would not at all be shocked to know the number of times that somebody will say yes to me while they are actually shaking their head no. <laughs> and then I can literally wow. say your words said yes and your face just said no. What did I miss? Because so often people don't give themselves permission to raise concerns they have. And it's funny, I wonder how many of your listeners are thinking, you know, Alex should just leave well enough alone. If the woman wants the agreement, great, let her ha- go ahead and sign it. The problem with that is it ends up falling apart. When I'm, you know, if I'm creating a deal for myself or I'm helping other people make a deal, I don't just want a handshake at any cost. I'm looking for a durable deal, a deal that's not going to fall apart when somebody goes back and thinks about it five hours later. Or it's not one where I'm sowing the seeds of division from our first meeting, and those seeds are going to germinate problems for us later on. And this, I think, is some of the gift of having been a litigator also, right? We Mm -hmm. see how things, small things at the beginning can lead to major problems. And so I would so much rather in the moment, if I sense a whisper of hesitation say, I could be wrong, this is what I just read. I'd love to invite you to be open about any concerns you have. I have never, ever regretted calling that out. And usually somebody says thank you and shares the thing that was on their mind.
1: You characterize it as calling it out, but I will say that the way that you've done it is not like a um, aggressive call out where it's just stating and being very clear in your communication that hey, I see this, but I'm hearing that. Can you can we actually talk about it? So you make it sound very easy, but it, it's it's true.
0: <laughs> You know, I'm so glad you, because as those words were coming out of my mouth, I thought, oh, calling it out normally seems pejorative, right? Like you did this thing and I'm not into it. I guess what I might say instead is naming it. Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes negotiation is a way to talk about some of the most difficult things in life, Mm -hmm. whether that is somebody's personal reservations about a potential contract or in a lot of my cases, that could be discrimination. It could be somebody's identity. There are so many personal things that we deal with in negotiation. And what I often find is that people will drop little crumbs because they want to know if it's safe to go there. They Mm want to know if I'm going to pick that up and say, I noticed this, I'm open to having the conversation. And so... Noticing body language or noticing the ways in which somebody's words may not match their emotional state helps induce that kind of transparency that then leads to real agreement, real accord, and real relationships. You know, if we're steering relationships,
1: I want that relationship to be a good one. Do you find that people might show this disconnect because they haven't prepared adequately for negotiation, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pile on here. Try and land the plane quickly. To borrow your phrase that I know you use in your book, you talk about how important it is to prepare yourself for negotiation. Do you feel that people might be saying one thing but displaying a different message because they haven't adequately prepared to negotiate?
0: Mm, such an interesting question. I think that could be one reason, and and I'll. I'll take this part of the question first. One of the questions that I have people ask themselves, so ask for more is divided into two sections. It's the mirror section and the window section. Mm -hmm. Those are the two stages of negotiation. You have to start at home first with yourself. Every negotiation starts with you, and then you work on opening up a window between you and somebody else to understand them and the situation better. So when I'm in the mirror, the metaphorical mirror, one of the questions I'm asking myself is what do I feel about this situation? And a lot of lawyers, I think in particular, recoil from what I call the F word because we're not (laughs) used to thinking about feelings. You know, I'll never forget one of the first times I presented this material, I was uh, teaching a keynote and somebody says, I can't write down my feelings. (laughs) I'm wearing a suit and I (laughs) laughed so hard because I thought, how relatable, right? We we often feel like when we put on the suit, it's like a metaphorical suit of armor and Mm -hmm. we're not supposed to feel. But the unfortunate reality is whether you are a lawyer or not, we all have feelings when we negotiate. If you write them down in advance, research shows that some of their power over you can dissipate. You might feel a little bit more in control when you get into your actual conversation with somebody else. But the other reason I think there could be a disconnect between what you're seeing on somebody's face and what their words are saying is that we continue to think that feelings aren't acceptable and that there Mm -hmm. can't be a place for them in negotiation, that they get in the way of making decisions but actually feelings are how we make decisions. Mm -hmm. Neuroscience research tells us that without the center of our brain that processes feelings, we could discuss all day whether we wanted to order Chinese or Italian for dinner, but we might not be able to actually make that decision. It Mm -hmm. comes from that feeling center. And so sometimes feelings come up in negotiation because we're dealing with important stuff But instead of taking a pause to say, you know, I'm I'm feeling this way about this, I'm not sure how this sits with me, people feel like they have to suppress that. And so their words will say one thing, but really their face and their gut are saying something else. And so part of why I name that, right, not call it out, part of why Mm -hmm. I name that when I see that, open for the possibility that I'm wrong, is that... I want people to know it's okay, it's acceptable, it's good to have feelings about what we're talking about. It means it matters. It means you care. It means it might be core to how you see yourself or how you see your professional life. And all of those things are not only okay, they're good. And you can use them and harness them to your benefit in negotiation.
1: The hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform,
0: a drive to be absolutely on your game, with superior resources, serious
1: preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your path to teaching negotiation at Columbia Law and becoming director of the law school's negotiation clinic. Can you tell us how you got where you are today? That's
0: a long story. I'm trying to figure out which version of that. I guess I can start in law school. So I went to law school kind of in a way I pushed the default button. I knew that I really enjoyed writing and research. I knew that I enjoyed advocacy. And I knew I wasn't going to business school or med school. And so (laughs) I thought, all right, I'm going to get a law degree and see where I can go next. But like a lot of students, I entered and I really wasn't sure what being a lawyer meant or looked like or what my path would be. And I certainly wasn't aware of all the different paths that one could take in the law. And so it wasn't until I was about to enter my 3L year, my last year, That a friend of mine came to me and she said, You know, Alex, I just took this class. It's called Mediation. It involves a lot of talking. I think you'd be great at it. (laughs) And, um, you know, the shade was fully meant, but I (laughs) enrolled in the course and I'll never forget I was trained for the first couple of weeks and then I went into court. And in this kind of dingy jury room in New York City, I helped a couple people try to work out a small claims dispute. And when I tell you I was hooked, it was Mm -hmm. as though I heard Morgan Freeman's voice coming down and saying, (laughs) Alex, this is it. You have found what you were meant to do for the rest of your life. Except I had no idea how to graduate from law school and be a mediator or teach mediation. So I just focused on getting everything I could out of the course. I went on to be a teaching assistant. And then again, I pushed the default button and I went to a really large firm to do litigation. And as part of that, I started mediating pro bono. I started taking some of my clients to mediation. I'll never forget the moment of pride I had when my partner Um, I was a few years into my legal career, allowed me to take one of our clients to mediation on my own. Mm. And she said, Alex, I feel like you're going to be able to settle this because Mm. you'll know this process and you're going to put people in a settling frame of mind, whereas I'm just going to, you know, make it worse. And I remembered thinking, I have to find a way to get back to this. And it really was a professor who invested in me. At Columbia, she she called me one day and said, I'm thinking about retiring soon. And you were one of the best students I ever had. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to think about applying for my job. Have you ever thought about teaching? And I literally said, I've thought about winning the Powerball, but not seriously. <laughs> I, I just it it hadn't occurred to me. I knew that I loved mediating. And you know what I loved even more than that? I loved coaching and helping other people mediate. Um, Mm. I had had some experience with that as a teaching assistant my last semester at law school. And putting those together, being able to be in a job where I'm not just empowering the parties who are in front of me to help solve their disputes in a way that works for them, helping them take control of their lives, I get to help students step into the chair Mm. to empower themselves to assist those parties. And so the day that Columbia called me to say, come back, but as a professor, really was one of the happiest days of my life. And I've been there now 14 years, and I still absolutely love it. I thought that I was going to be a mediator who also taught, And instead, I realized I'm a teacher who mediates and coaches. And so after being at Columbia then for a little while teaching mediation, and most people who are listening to this will know mediation is facilitated negotiation. So I help people negotiate. I realized that what I was teaching was an approach to negotiation that people didn't have to wait until they were in court to be able to use. That if I were to give people this framework, they could use it to negotiate for themselves, not just in court, not just in mediation, but in their everyday lives, in their careers, maybe with clients, yes, but also with their colleagues and even with their families. And so the reason I published Ask for More was in a way to show people what a mediator's take on negotiation could be. This is an approach that you can use if you prioritize relationships, if you want to understand more about the people around you, if you'd like to make great money and create great deals while also feeling really good about the way you did it for the long term, that people could
1: have these tools in their hands. What an incredible story. And thank you for sharing it. Thank you for your candor. As I hear you talk about this day that you got the phone call being the happiest day of your life, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the actual decision to leave private practice. And maybe that's selfish on my part since I grappled with the decision to leave private practice. But knowing what I know about you, I'm sure you were a superstar litigator. And as much as that was a dream call, tell us what that decision-making process was like. Wow.
0: Well, the truth is that when I went in for that first round interview, I didn't think I was going to get the job. In fact, I almost didn't apply for the job, even Mm. after being invited to do so, Mm. because this is something that now i teach about and in particular for women lawyers you know there's a lot of research to show that we may not apply for jobs unless we think we meet
1: mm-hmm. at least
0: 100% of the criteria mm-hmm. like if we don't exceed the criteria yep and i got in my head and i thought you know i i have a lot of potential i know that but i've never taught at a law school before period. I've been a teaching assistant. I have taught at a lot of my firm's clients. I'm an excellent supervisor that I know, but I don't have experience doing this actual thing. Are they really going to take a flyer on me? And in a way, I think it's good that I had low expectations because I just came in and interviewed as myself. Mm. And I focused on what I did have that I might be short on experience, but I was long on vision and energy that I had been most recently in those students' shoes and I knew what they needed. And I wanted a place where I could grow the program and expand it and make it everything I thought it could be. And so when I did get the call, I felt a deep knowing in my gut that Mm -hmm. this is where I was supposed to be. I had a couple of challenging conversations at my firm. <laughs> the head of my practice area sat down with me and said, you know, I too was offered a chance to go into academia, but I, I turned it down to be a partner here. Wow. And I really respected what he was saying to me, but he looked so happy in that job. So happy. And I knew deep down that I might be good at that job but I wasn't going to be as happy as I saw him being and that I had to go to the place where that's how I was going to feel every day. And so it really—it was a couple of difficult conversations with people who were mentors to me and whom I trusted. But in the end, it was very, very clear to me that this is where I was going to go.
1: What's sage advice to really follow your knowing that you said you felt deep down inside? And I'll also say picking up on what energized you, even though you were good at being a lawyer at a law firm. I'm watching you and the listeners can't see you, but when you speak about negotiation and mediation, you, you're you energized, you're lighting up the room. So um, really, congratulations on piecing that together. And it looks like you wanna jump in and, and amend your comments. I do, I do. So I, I don't want to amend, I want to
0: expand, like a true lawyer. So <laughs> I often give students advice. Students will come into my office and say, I'm not sure what I want to do after school. And they're very focused on the labels, naturally. Mm. you know, Should I be an IP lawyer or should I be an antitrust lawyer? Should I be a litigator or should I be a corporate lawyer? And instead, what I like to tell people to do is to pay attention to the verbs. What are you doing? Not mm. not the labels of the job, the mm. verbs. What are you doing when you feel most lit up? When you feel like your highest and best is being called forth, what are you doing in that moment? Are you connecting people? Are you coaching? Are you writing? Are you persuading a jury? You know, there are all sorts of clues we can find if we think back to what are we doing when we're happiest. And when I looked back at my three years in law school, I realized that the two highlights for me were mediating and also the first time I got to be a teaching assistant for a professor Mm -hmm. who was near retirement. And I stood up once a week and I taught basically a section of con law to a group of grateful students. And I remembered thinking teaching and mediating have been my two favorite things, and I'm gonna put those two together, and that's gonna be my career. And over the years, I've talked to a lot of different students who um, have followed incredibly diverse career paths. I have students who are in elected office. I have students who are public defenders. Um, one went out to run a catering company because she realized in law school what she loved most was feeding people. Mm. You know, it's it's incredible all the different paths that people can carve, you know, in this profession or beyond. And really, it starts with paying attention to what brings you joy. And I, I I'm very left-brained, But I'm also a big believer that when you're doing what lights you up, you're going to end up being your most successful. Because it's true, I can't get enough of what (laughs) I do. It's kind of a problem because sometimes I work too hard. But when I'm training large companies, when I'm you know training law firms, when I'm teaching mediation skills training to my students, when I'm coaching them after a mediation, people often say to me something like, you look like there's nowhere else in the world you would rather be, and that's absolutely true. And that's really what I want for my students and also for the people, hopefully, who are listening to this
1: podcast. I am confident that the people listening to this podcast, much like your students, will have their Morgan Freeman moment like you did with the voice and the light shining from above when they pay attention to their verbs. So thank you for sharing that with us on this podcast too. Alex, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to share a story I've heard you tell about the very first time that you negotiated.
0: Yes. So early on in my career, I was at a couple of different organizations where compensation was lockstep. Mm. And I remembered thinking at the time, you know, how privileged that was in so many different ways, you know, that I I didn't have to worry about negotiating. It also kind of took money off the table as a um, as a thing between colleagues. Sure. I remember one of my colleagues at, at um, one of my earlier jobs walking into my office and saying, "What do we make again? I have to write it on my mortgage <laughs> application, right?" And and it was not a thing because we all made the same at that level, so then enter the first position where it's not lockstep, and I have to negotiate for myself. And I walk in. this was the stage of my life when I was wearing heels. And so I went in with my tallest <laughs> heels, right to try to um, you know induce as many feelings of power sure. inside me as possible, because I was really nervous. And I got a good offer. I mean, in fact, I got an offer that was slightly more than what I was expecting. And for a moment I was tempted to just accept it on the spot. But then I remembered my training and I thought, nope, that's not what I'm supposed to do. So I said, let me run my numbers, thank you very much. And I made the decision that changed my life. I called a senior woman in my field and I said, can you give me some advice? I I got this great offer, I'm not sure what to do. And she said, I'm gonna tell you what to do, Alex. You're gonna go back in there And you're going to ask for more. And I said, I'm going to ask for more. And she said, yes, because when you teach someone how to value you, you're teaching him how to value all of us. So if you're not going to go in and do it for yourself, I want you to do it for the woman who's coming after you. Do it for the sisterhood. Wow. And I remember sitting back and thinking, whew. Oh, man, now I have to negotiate in every circumstance because I realized in that moment that I had been programmed to think several wrong things about negotiation. The first was that somehow if I negotiated, I wasn't for myself. I was great for other people. Let's Mm -hmm. be clear. I was the junkyard dog if my clients, my (laughs) colleagues, my family, my friends needed anything. I would fearlessly, collaboratively, I would fearlessly go out and get it for them. And then when it came to me, I hesitated. I thought if I negotiate, maybe I won't be likable, right? This, this trap that so often as women, we feel like we're going to fall into, right? If I, if I don't negotiate, then I'm just a worker bee. I have no potential. If I do negotiate, I'm too, quote unquote, aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I was worried about looking, quote unquote, aggressive. But the second thing I realized was I thought that if I negotiated for more, that left other people with less. Mm -hmm. And what that woman taught me is, no, in fact, when you negotiate for yourself, what you are doing then is raising the bar for the way that women are treated at that organization. You make it easier for the next woman to go in and to claim her value. And so from that moment on, I realized that I needed to spend my life helping people understand that being valued, asking for more, actually benefits other people. The first way it benefits other people is that let's imagine your employer actually pays you the amount that's going to make you thrilled to show up and give all of yourself to that job. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what your employer wants? Don't you want people who are coming into the office lit up, feeling valued, and ready to give their highest and best? And, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this could remember a time when they did the opposite, when you sold yourself short. And what happens then? We feel irritated. We feel taken advantage of. And that's not starting the relationship off on the note we want. So first of all, when you are fully valued, it benefits other people. But also, when you claim your worth, especially if you are underrepresented in that profession, you are normalizing what it means to be a woman, to be a person of color, to be somebody who's LGBTQ, whatever it might be, and fully claiming your value in that space. And so I love teaching negotiation to everyone, but I especially love teaching people who maybe have wondered at one point in their careers or not, you know, do I belong here? Will I get a seat at that table? Because I want you to know that you can, you should,
1: and you deserve it. When I was in private practice, we had this saying, slap a caption on it. When someone would say something so profound, you wanted to remember it. So that is why I wanted you to tell the story of your first negotiation because you really hit so many nails on so many heads with why we do not ask for more, particularly as women. You don't want to be seen as aggressive. But when explained that it really is about doing it for the sisterhood, that is what motivates us to, as I wrote down, in all caps, as you were just speaking, claim your value. So thank you for sharing this. It's my pleasure.
0: In everything I'm doing, I'm thinking about being the person that other people were for me. You know, Mm -hmm. I had somebody, I was very fortunate to have somebody to tap me on the shoulder and say, you're ready, you're worth it, you deserve it, go get it. And so from that moment on, I always tell people, if you feel the tap on your shoulder, that's me telling you you're worth it, you're des- you deserve
1: it, go out and get it. And that's one of the many reasons why I love following you on social media and having read your book because you are certainly practicing what you preach. So thank you again. Alex, let me close with one last question. I'm curious to hear, What excites you right now? Oh, what excites me
0: right now? Okay, I'm gonna be really honest. Good. I am at this moment on sabbatical. I am so fortunate to be in a job where every six to seven years, I get a sabbatical period in which to write, to think, and also to rest mm-hmm. and the last couple of years have been so richly rewarding and fulfilling and very, very busy and also really difficult. I lost my dad to dementia last I'm year. Sorry. He was sick really throughout the pandemic and we were separated mm-hmm. and I found myself coming into this year really wanting intentional rest, not just a little bit more time to sleep but also time to quiet the mind, to go within and to make sure that in the mix of everything I have going on, I love my work so much that sometimes I I do too much of it. I want to also be sure that I'm living a life that is sustainable and I want to take a little bit of time during these few months that I'm not teaching at the law school to be with my family and to really cherish what matters most. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always going to be excited about my work. I I can't help it. I Mm -hmm. absolutely love Mm -hmm. it. It's difficult to shut the switch off, but At the moment, I would say I'm most excited about that chance for rest and renewal and to focus on being present in my
1: everyday life. Thank you for that. And I'll share that my word of the year that I picked was intention, because I have found as I've gotten older that life does move too quickly. Family is the most important. So, I appreciate hearing you recognize that as well as someone in your position.
0: That's so interesting. So yours was intention and mine is trust. Mm. I realized last year that I was feeling a lot of anxiety, sometimes because I was trying to hold on to control in a world that we now know is not within <laughs> our control, right? Yes. Try as I might, I think I'm very powerful. I haven't figured out how to bend the world to um, my will and my vision for humanity. Mm-hmm. And so instead, this is the year that I'm working to let go and to trust myself, trust others, trust that all things are working for good and uh so i love that here we are we're both really settling into the stuff kind of outside of work and making sure that that's being in its central place
1: absolutely and i'll end by saying i still tell myself the serenity prayer about what i can and cannot control quite often So Alex, thank you so much for this conversation and being a guest today on The Hearing. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The Hearing. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed this episode. We would love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and ideas for future guests. Please drop us a line at tr.com. That's TR.com. Until next time. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your
0: podcasts.